0: Look for high impact, high unknown decisions. Look for decisions that you know are going to be difficult to change. And then even if you take just a handful of those and you look for, okay, for these decisions, what's the right time? What is the last responsible moment? Who are the right people to make those decisions? And then what do I need to know to make that decision with greater confidence? And if you even just do that thinking exercise, that in and of itself is going to put you way ahead of the game.
1: Welcome to Innovation Talks. Join us weekly as we discuss with distinguished industry guests how to refine and improve corporate innovation and new product development. Hosted by Paul Heller, Sophion Chief Evangelist.
2: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Glad you could join us again. Today, we have a guest, Catherine Radica. Uh, She is the founder and executive director of the Rapid Learning Cycles Institute, We're going to find out more about what that is, what that means. She supports a growing global community of innovators who are using high-velocity innovation to get their best ideas to market faster. She's out there working globally, lots of different companies, lots of different industries, avid writer, uh, speaker, real pleasure to welcome her on the show. Catherine, glad you could join us.
0: I'm really glad to be here.
2: Yeah. And where are you located today?
0: So I am in Camas, Washington, which is just across the river from Portland, Oregon. So I always tell people I'm about ten miles from the Portland airport.
2: Aha. Okay. Yep. 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 And how's your weather up there? Is it fall, winter, summer?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's uh it's definitely fall. It's definitely cooler, but it's not been raining as much as it should be.
2: Yeah, you had a dry, dry spell, apparently, lately. Well, um, You know, I know you're reading a little bit about you. You're an avid uh, hiker, mountain climber, really an outdoors person. And uh, you had one experience that caused you to change direction. What was that?
0: (laughs) Okay. So this was probably about 15 years ago. I was hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, the Oregon section of the Pacific Crest Trail. So Pacific Crest Trail, of course, is the really long trail that starts at the border of Mexico and goes all the way through California, sure. Oregon and Washington, all the way up to Canada. But I was only trying to do the Oregon section. Got out there. was about 10 days on the trail. It's about a third of the way through the state. When I came around a corner and saw something flash about 10 feet in front of me, then it ran downhill, turned around and stopped. And a big black bear turned around and looked at me. Oh, my. So I very slowly backed around this corner, <laughs> and I stood there for a very long time. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I realized that I was not in a good place.
2: <laughs> no, no.
0: Yeah. And so I ended up leaving the trail the next time it crossed the highway.
2: Yeah, I bet. That's a scary experience. Yeah, it was scary. <laughs> yeah, Well, I'm glad you made it. Glad you're here. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you've written a couple of books, High Velocity Innovation, and one called The Shortest Distance Between You and Your New Product. What are those about?
0: So I help companies get their ideas to market faster. And I do that by changing how they think about where and when and how they make decisions. Because in about 2010, uh, my clients and I had a breakthrough. We learned why most innovation programs take too long, cost too much, and deliver disappointing results. And we learned that if we could eliminate the root causes of those problems, then we could get our ideas to market in half the time that a typical product would take. And it turned out that the key to that was by focusing on the types of decisions that tend to be revisited in late development. That if we could make those decisions at the right time with the right people and the best available knowledge, then teams would get to the execution phases of an innovation and not suffer those loopbacks from revisited decisions. And so they would not have the problems that a typical team would encounter. And when they did that, they were able to get things out faster.
2: Yeah. And have companies been able to actually achieve that? Or is that a struggle for companies to to kind of get to changing the way you make decisions and speed and...
0: Yeah, so it has, sometimes it is a struggle to think about decisions because our training is, and many of us are explicitly told to make decisions as fast as possible. And then if it goes wrong, just change it. And that works with most decisions. It works with decisions that you already know a lot about because you're likely to be right. It works well with decisions that are easy to change because if if you make the wrong decision, you'll just change it. Or with decisions that are so low impact that you wouldn't care. But the kinds of decisions that we focus on are those high impact, high unknown decisions that are these are the decisions that tend to trigger long, slow loopbacks when you get late in development and then you realize that they have to change. And so we struggle sometimes to help companies understand that while some decisions can and should be made right away, other decisions need to be made at what I call the last responsible moment. And they're like, they're blown away by that a little bit. They're like, really? I, you know, I'm going to go faster if I delay this decision.
2: Yeah, right.
0: But, but the reality is that, that and, and this is something that we actually, my, uh, my colleague and I, Kathy, write about in the new book, we write about why this is true, that there are some decisions that you need to make as late as possible, because when you make a decision as late as possible... You shorten the time from when that decision gets made to when it gets implemented, when it gets executed, and then you get faster feedback on that decision. Mm. And so with some decisions, you can get fast feedback right away, and then, you know, you can, but the kinds of decisions that I work with, with physical products, we make a lot of decisions about manufacturability, around supplier choices, around material choices, so on and so on, that aren't really validated until the product is being produced at scale. And when you yeah. have those kinds of decisions, you want to delay those as late as possible.
2: Yeah. Everybody gets hung up early on. Well, how are we going to manufacture it? And want to get into the nth level detail on that. That's right. I I hear you. Yeah, I've and we are like, like, you yes. don't
0: need to know that yet. Yeah.
2: Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. So how did you get started in this journey of of innovation and and this kind of thinking?
0: Um, so I've been doing this kind of work pretty much since I left high school. Um, My first job out of college was at Baylor College of Medicine. I um, was in a research lab there and they had a PC that was sitting over in the corner that nobody really knew how to use. And so it was just, you know, everybody was too busy to learn and I learned it. I figured out how to uh, work the computer and ended up developing a database to store the team's clinical results, which to make it easier for them to produce the kinds of statistics that they needed for their papers. And I've been developing products of one kind or another ever since. Mm.
2: Yeah. And obviously, seen a lot of success and failures along the way, I'm sure. Is there one shining moment that you look back and you say, oh, that was a real big success?
0: Yeah. Well, the, probably the thing that I'm the most proud of is that from about 2010 to about 2012, four companies um, approached me with the same problem, which is, can we use principles from Lean and Agile? to change what we do in the early stages of innovation programs to get better results at the end. Those four companies were Novazymes and Novo Nordisk in Denmark and Steelcase and Whirlpool in the United States. We um, would run an experiment and then we'd see what worked and didn't work about it. And then I'd go to the next team at the next company and I'd run a slightly different experiment. And they all knew I was doing this. We were very open about what we were doing. And then we would kind of circle back And out of that work, uh, we began to see that we were actually moving the needle on performance, that products were getting done faster, that they were experiencing fewer problems in late development. And the rapid learning cycles framework is the thing that emerged from that and I ended up writing two books about it. I would say that it is an adaptation of Agile and Lean principles for physical product development where we have many decisions that have high cost of change. So software has lots of decisions, but many of those decisions are relatively easy to change. Physical product developers make decisions that tend to be harder to change. And so we figured out how to use agile principles to accelerate those programs.
2: There's a lot of people trying to figure that out. They're given a book or they're given a, a direction from above says you have to be agile. A lot of times it's... it's. Uh, The hardware teams don't know how to do it. The software teams, and if it happens to be a product that is hybrid, they raise their hand and say, we know how to do it, and we're going to teach you how to do it. But that doesn't always work, does it?
0: No, it doesn't doesn't work. And it doesn't work because the nature of development in hardware and software are fundamentally different. When you write a piece of software code, that software code that you write is pretty infinitely replicable. So once you've developed it, you store it on a server somewhere, somebody can download it anywhere in the world. They can flash it on a million machines. You know, there's like it's it's very very low transaction cost to replicate it. But hardware, that's the name of the game, right? The hardest thing to do for a physical product is figure out how to scale it up, how to produce it in industrial quantities. You know, and so the challenges then are completely different. You know, in a software space, um, the thing that works the best is to make early decisions, throw them out there, get rapid feedback, do rapid testing. And that's how you accelerate learning. On the physical product side, we can't do that as easily. Um, It takes a long time. It takes longer to build prototypes. It takes longer to, and it definitely takes longer to prove that it works at industrial scale. And so with that, the kinds of experiments we have to run are different. And the way that we have to approach decision-making are, is different because of the high cost of change for our decisions. And so in that environment, the better thing to do is to delay decisions, to run experiments and do everything you can to build knowledge before you make the decision so that when you make the decision, you can execute it and you know that it will stick.
2: Yeah. Have you experienced in a hybrid product where there's a degree of software and a degree of of, of- I guess we call it physical product but it it could be food it could be anything you know this is we see this growing digital aspect to products it's happening everywhere what kind of challenges are these hardware and software teams facing when they suddenly have to work together
0: well it can be a bit of a clash of cultures for one thing you know especially yeah. <laughs> especially for um products where they either haven't had much software at all you know so like a food product right that's trying to add a digital component, or or it's been mainly software that gets shipped with the product itself, which means that it also has some of the constraints of the product itself. Namely that once you ship it, it's shipped and you can't easily change it. You move then into a connected product and connected products have a cloud service that's gathering the data from the device. It has a, a need to connect to the internet and standards are changing and, and up improving all the time it has the need to display that information to um, the end user, um, usually in some kind of app, right? And developing a cloud-based service, developing an app are fundamentally different even from developing the software that runs embedded in the device. And so that can lead to uh, mismatched expectations. It can lead to on both sides, such as you know the hardware people saying, well, you have to finish this because we have to ship the product. And we have to know that it's done. And the reality is the app doesn't have to be done when they ship the product. The app can continue to evolve as they learn more about how the user is you know, handling the data from, that they're getting from the, the device. And so, so a really good example of that is a product that I worked on a um, company in Australia that makes, they basically make a GPS collar for livestock. So think about a collar, it goes around the animal's neck, it keeps track of the animal's location and um, position. Um, so it can tell what they're doing. Are they eating? Are they sleeping? Are they, you know, resting, whatever? Well, so it's the physical product, but it's also the connectivity um, from the animal to a, a base on the farm to the data that the farmer is getting, you know, that actually creates like a map of where they, where each animal is on the property, right? So the collar, once the collar is out there, the farmer doesn't want to touch it again. I mean, if the farmer never had to touch that collar again, they'd be happy, Right.
2: Yeah, right. But
0: what the farmer is doing and how they learn to interact with the information that they're getting about the health of the animal, about the the location of the animal, you know, leads to things that the company even didn't really anticipate. Like one of the more interesting uses for this actually is to be able to move a herd from one place on the farm to another just by moving a virtual fence. That wasn't something mm. that they, they didn't even think, they didn't even know they could do that when they started, but they realized, oh, you know, we're, when, the way it works is when an animal gets too close to a virtual fence, it gives it an audio signal. And then if the cow doesn't pay attention to that, then it gives them a little bit of a pulse, an electric pulse to kind of get their attention, right? So they learned, oh, well, we can just set the um, fence pole a little bit close to the animal, close enough that they get the audio signal, they'll move, and then we can move the fence, and then they'll move, and they'll move the fence. And see, they didn't make any changes to the physical product to do that, right? So what that leads to then is um, is the fact that the, the cloud-based service can, can continue to evolve, use all the best of agile software development to do that, but the physical product is one that the farmer really would prefer never to touch. So completely different things from the perspective of the cost of change and, and what kind of support and services needed. And what kind of reliability right. and all that is needed.
2: Oh, what an awesome story. I yeah. never even thought about that. That's a great use case right there. Yeah. But if you're in a regulated uh, product, right, where you ne- maybe need to go through some regulatory approvals, I guess that adds another layer of complexity or, or interaction on between these teams again, doesn't it?
0: it? It does. It does. And And how it changes it is very interesting because- when you're operating in a regulated environment, one of the things that happens is that we talk about cost of change. You know, from, from my perspective, I'm always looking at, okay, for a given decision, what's the cost of change? If it's low cost of change, let's, you know, we'll make it, we'll fix it. You know, if it's wrong, if it's high cost of change, we need to get it right the first time because it's painful to change, right? And so um, when things like the software code that runs a pacemaker or, you know, or the, the, the physical device itself, When the design documentation goes under regulatory control, the cost of change immediately goes up because it's under a lot more control. And so what this means is that even for software teams, they end up in a situation where there's a cost if they want to change the code. And so that will tend to drive them to act a little bit more, you know, like a physical product team because of that. And also because in a lot of times the reason why these products are regulated is because they have life and death, you know, um, implications, right? They would do that anyway, in in a sense, because they would know, you know, like the firmware that's embedded in a pacemaker is not something you're just going to change very often, you know, as you've demonstrated that works, Right
2: right right well, i know of a a story, a first hand story of a medical device company and uh, obviously the software people were shooting for a minimal viable product and said don't worry we can we can fix it later or we can enhance it later and the hardware guy said w- wait a minute <laughs> we have to go for we have to go for another 3 months round of approval if we're going to even do anything like that, that. that
0: that's exactly right yes that's and and for good reason yeah
2: yeah for good reason but it did add I wouldn't say conflict, that's not the right word, but it adds a uh, lack of awareness, you know, frustration that software guys want to go fast. Why can't we go faster? We can't go fast enough and they get frustrated. And then the hardware guys think, ah, you're just all shooting from the hip. Guys and girls, it's just use that generic term, but yeah, yeah. Um, what about supply chain? You know, now, now all of a sudden supply chains become a big problem, right? It's... Everybody said it was microprocessors, but now we see, no, it's more than just microprocessors, raw materials, components. How's that affecting? Are you seeing that yet in the work you've been doing?
0: Well, so definitely, my clients are definitely experiencing a lot of supply chain disruption, you know, and then how that impacts them, you know, from, you know, from this perspective is that, Um, Decisions that may have been relatively easy to change before become harder to change because you might have fewer suppliers or you might be competing for a more limited supply. So the teams that I work with, you know, we we talk about, you know, make a decision with the best available knowledge. So they're doing a lot more experimentation before they make their decisions. And one of the benefits that that gives them is that when they do need to change that decision, they know a lot more about what they're changing, they might have mm-hmm. explored more alternative vendors, for example. So they might, they might have more room to maneuver.
2: Yeah. So they've got to introduce this new thinking, this new all these new concepts, right? Just, mm-hmm. I guess, the process evolves, right? The yeah. decision making process, the development process. If we think about the decision making process, because that's that's really what what you started focusing on uh, first in the call. Is it just about development or is there more around the development? Does it get into launch? Does it get into early concepts? Where do things like other methodologies, whether they be waterfall or gated or do any of those have a home in this?
0: So most of the organizations that I work with have a phase gate process and we don't usually touch the phase gate process directly. It will, you know, so groups that that work with me that end up using the principles that I describe in my books will retain the face gate process, but it'll become more like the original purpose of the face gate process, which is to provide a business control, right? So in the early stages, is this the right thing to do? And then in the later stages, have we achieved a level of acceptable risk that we're ready to take it to the next step, right? Right. And, um, and it'll become much more focused about those decisions instead of what face gates become in so many organizations, which is just laundry lists of all the deliverables that they need to produce for each phase, right? So it's not that the team doesn't produce deliverables because those are important to communicate the design intent to the people who need to know in production and supply chain and so on. But the emphasis is much more on the quality of the decisions that are embedded in those documents um, instead of about getting the documents done themselves. Right. So we it, it does, um, in a, with PhaseGate, we, we don't, um, in fact, if a group doesn't have PhaseGate, sometimes I'll suggest putting one in because they do need the business control. You know, with a group like we've been talking about with connected products, we have many, many product teams where the cloud-based people And the app people are running as agile as they possibly can. They're throwing out MVPs. You know, they are getting user feedback and then adapting rapidly based on that feedback. The embedded people kind of sit in the middle, able to do some things because they can change the software more readily than the hardware people can change the hardware. So they're able to be a little bit more um, and maybe using an agile methods to do that. And then the hardware people are really using the rapid learning cycles uh, material when it makes sense in early development as they're working towards decisions, and then a, um, you know, kind of a more traditional process as they move through execution. And, and the reason for that, you know, and, and you know, agile people, a lot of agile people like, oh, well, waterfall's bad, traditional project plans are bad, you should never have a Gantt chart. And that only works in areas like software, where you don't have complex change the dependencies you manage. But the teams that um, I work with, the physical product teams, do. We have very complicated um, dependency chains. And in that environment, we need to visualize those, and we need to keep those. And so we will use traditional tools to help us do that.
2: Yeah, yeah. What you're describing is a need for the software people to understand the hardware people, and vice versa, right? That You have to understand where they're coming from what 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 where they're what field they're playing ball in right
0: yes yes and it does help when yeah. they understand that so one thing that i have seen in multiple places that i've been into is agile software expert will come in agile coach and they'll try to coach the hardware teams and they'll tell right. people we're going to use this backlog based planning and they, you know the have them try to put everything into a backlog and oh yeah we don't need that gantt chart thing and almost universally, the person who's in charge of the program will make that Gantt chart and they'll stick it in a drawer somewhere and they'll look at it because they have to, because they have to visualize the relationships in that way in order to understand the flow of work. But then, you know, they just won't tell their Agile coach they're doing it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: And there's a need, there's a need for commitments between when you got multiple teams. Now all of a sudden it's not one team, it's two, three, four, five teams, maybe five, features, each one a different team. There's a need for commitments and agreements across all those teams, right? I don't know if the pure agile methodologies cover those things. I think they're they're
0: and, and it's not that they don't cover them because it's missing. They don't cover them because a team that's making an app for the App Store doesn't really need it in the same way. True. They're able yeah, to make yeah. their work much more standalone. So you can have those five teams working in parallel on different sets of features, they may never need to interact with each other as long as the overall architecture is solid. They can add features in any order. They probably have a lot more uh, ability to change work, you know, from one person to another, because pretty much, you know, coders are not independent, interchangeable. They do gain, you know, build knowledge in particular areas, but it's still, you know, they're more flexible say than having a mechanical engineer do the work of an electrical engineer.
2: Right, yeah.
0: And so all of those things kind of give them the ability to work in a very different way than a hardware team uh, needs to work. And um, where we see the most conflict is when people come in and tell the hardware team, oh, just use Agile. And this is what Agile looks like. Meaning this is what Agile looks like for me as a software developer. And without realizing that um, the challenges of a hardware developer are actually quite different.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, this is really fascinating uh, area that you're working in and I'm glad you're out there helping companies see this and learn this and understand this because so many are in some transition of, uh, I've talked to companies and they've said, well, in the last six months, we've hired 3,000 developers. I mean, they've gone for this massive scale. Yes. They're into the software business and and... And sometimes I tell them, well, you're not really in the software business. You're in the customer experience business, right? Yes,
0: you are. And yes. And and for a connected product, the customer experience, you know, starts with the hardware, right? And then it goes through the cloud and through the app and then back. But at the end of the day, you know, it's the hardware that's delivering the value to the customer.
2: Yeah, correct. Yeah. It's what people buy. They buy that hardware with capabilities in it. If you were to give one piece of advice, like a starting piece of advice or for for somebody who says, okay, we need to get agile. We need to in our in our physical product, we want to adopt these principles. It's new to us. What well, what advice would you give them?
0: Okay, well the first thing I would say is that if if you're interested in agile, look for resources that are tailored for hardware that are that have been actively used that are not theoretical. There's a lot there's still a lot of theoretical work being done about how we think it should be. Well, you know, look for examples of people that have actually done it successfully. In terms of like what you can immediately do on your own program, the place that I always like to tell people to start is to look for high impact high unknown decisions. Look for decisions that you know are going to be difficult to change. And then Even if you take just a handful of those and you look for, okay, for these decisions, what's the right time? What is the last responsible moment? Who are the right people to make those decisions? And then what do I need to know to make that decision with greater confidence? And if you even just do that thinking exercise, that in and of itself is going to put you way ahead of the game. It's going to help make visible to you where you have opportunities to build knowledge, where you have opportunities to start working with decision makers early, to help prepare them to make good decisions and, you know, and where you might have opportunities to give yourself more time and space to learn by delaying the decision a little bit longer.
2: Yeah. I think if somebody asked me what's what one piece of advice, I'd say, give you a call <laughs> <laughs> or at least yeah. read your books. <laughs> you got to figure it out. <laughs> so tell us about the new book you mentioned you're working on with Kathy. What's, what's that about?
0: Sure. So that book is called when agile gets physical and it basically explains why Agile works, and then applies those principles to the hardware development space specifically. Because most people don't realize that Agile is actually grounded in a body of work called queuing theory. Don Reinertsen is probably the best well-known in terms of applying that to product development. He's written wrote a couple of books about that a couple of decades ago. And the Agile methods actually explicitly or implicitly use a lot of that thinking to develop practices like the sprint and the daily stand-up and the idea of a backlog and backlog management. All of those ideas can be traced back to, you know, the early agile thinkers and applying what they had learned about queuing theory to that space.
2: Right. Interesting.
0: So that's what this book does. It basically says, okay, well, first of all, here's the problem. We've got a lot of people coming in telling hardware developers just use Agile. We know that's not working, all right? So what do we do instead? Well, okay, let's go back and look at principles. And then we look at those principles and we talk about how rapid learning cycles instantiates those principles, how um, integration trains um, instantiate those principles for teams that need to integrate hardware, firmware, software um, in a coordinated way. And and some other practices around, you know, so that um, what we describe at, by the end of the book is a system for using Agile in the physical product space that will actually move the needle on performance wow. for the hardware teams, that will help them get their products to market faster.
2: I can't wait to see it. When is when, Any idea, rough idea when you might be coming out with it?
0: I'm fairly sure it's going to be out by the end of January. Oh,
2: fantastic. Yeah. Good.
0: We're no. very close.
2: Good, good, good. Yeah. I mean, integration train, that's an interesting term. I don't know if I've heard that term. What's that about?
0: Okay. So you think about a train, right? So trains stop at different stations and they stop on a regular schedule. And so you can predict when the train's going to arrive, you know, assuming that there's no issues with tracks or anything, you know, the train's going to arrive when the train schedule says it will arrive, right? So the idea behind this is we basically say, okay, for this given train, what's going to be on this train? Right. So let's say that we're developing a new connected feature that's going to enable, you know, a consumer to control the temperature of their air fryer remotely. All right. So um, we say, okay, what has to be there for us to demonstrate that we've delivered this feature? Well, okay, there's um, the hardware. The hardware has to be capable of controlling the temperature. The embedded software has to be capable of, you know, controlling the temperature based on input the cloud-based system and the app must be capable of displaying the current temperature to the user and then giving them a means to adjust it, right? So all of those things go on the train. The train then goes into system tests to verify that all those things are actually working the way that they're supposed uh-huh. to, right? Yeah. So what we do then is we build like a schedule that says, okay, every two weeks or, you know, four weeks. It's usually tied to whatever the um, the software team's you know, agile development process, what their sprint length is. You know, for each one of those, what is gonna be on the train? Uh, in the book, uh, you know, Kathy uh, uses printer examples a lot because we're both, she and I, you know, come out of HP's Inkjet printer division. So for a printer, one of, the, um, one of the integration trains that's early on might just be, can it print? Can I push the button on a printer and can it print a test page? Okay, then maybe the next train. All right, well, can I connect to the printer with a wire? With a wired connection and send it a job and will it print that job? And then maybe, can it print wirelessly or can it print over the cloud, right? So kind of building up that functionality, you know, gradually layering in things like color printing and, you know, different kinds of paper that it might need to be able to accommodate so that each of those trains contains the, the entire bundle of things that it needs to do in order to perform that function.
2: Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That's a, I've heard of release trains, but integration train was, is, I think, what now takes it beyond just software.
0: That's exactly right. It is based on the concept of a release train. and But what we're doing is we're um, recognizing that um, these connected products are integrated bundles. And so we need to have more of a focus on the integration piece.
2: Right. Well, you know, <laughs> I was going to ask you, you're working on so many things that are exciting. New book. Inventing rapid learning cycles, teaching people what it is. But my question was going to be, what are you working on now that's exciting? So I don't know if there's anything else or not. I mean, that's
0: well, okay. So there is actually something that I'm working ah. on that's newer and 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 exciting. Uh, very much in line with everything else. Uh, I've got a project called Accelerate Net Zero, and it basically is to teach the lessons that we've learned about accelerating innovation, specifically for people in startups that are developing the technology we need to address climate change. Mm. Um, So one company that I'm getting engaged with is a company called Aeroshield. They're a company that just came out of the Activate um, Acceleration Program in Boston. And they have a special insulating material to reduce energy consumption in windows. So that's a startup that I've worked with. Um, Another startup that I'm working with is one that is looking at small-scale hydrogen generation from waste heat. So as a way to replace fossil fuels and like farms and other, other places where there's a lot of waste heat. So, you know, that's kind of, you know, taking, and this is, this is a kind of free mentoring that, that I provide to startup teams that are working in this space.
2: Yeah. So if when I started asking ask you, what are you working on? It's exciting. That is very exciting. So that's really cool. Good yeah. luck with that. Great. I, I want you to be wildly successful because uh, our planet needs it. Yeah. If people want to find out more, how do, they, how do they find out more? How do they find you, follow you? Uh, where are you active?
0: Well, one of the good things about me is that my name is unique in the world except for an elderly aunt. That I have my (laughs) husband's elderly aunt. So if you search for Catherine Radica, you are going to find me on Google, on Amazon. You'll find my books on, um, you know, you'll find our website, rapidlearningcycles.com, which is the home of the Rapid Learning Cycles Institute. Um, You'll find High Velocity Innovation, which is my blog. So, I mean, to be honest, that's the easiest way to connect with me is just put my name into Google and see what you come up with.
2: Excellent. It's Mm R-A-D-E-K-A, Catherine with a K. But we'll, have, we'll make sure we put links in the show notes so that uh, people can go there as well and get directly connected to you. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I really enjoyed this conversation. Would love to get back to you as you get closer, maybe when you release your book or you're right about to release it. Just touch base again and talk about the book if you're up for it. I would love that. Great, let's do that. Okay. Otherwise, I wish you a great week and and uh, thanks for joining us. And to everybody else out there, thank you for joining us. Uh, this is for you. We hope that uh, you enjoyed this session. I sure did, uh, learned a ton of information, uh, really fun to talk to Catherine. So I wish you a great week, everybody, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Take care and bye for now.
1: Thanks for joining us this week for Innovation Talks with Paul Heller. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For additional information on today's topic, check out sophion.com, S-O-P-H-E-O-N.com, where you will find plenty of innovation-centric content and corporate best practices. If you'd like to discuss anything with Paul or would like to get in touch with the show, email us at talks at sophion.com.